0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. For those of you who don't know, I'm David Bose. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute. One of the great things about our new building is we have multiple venues. So you may have noticed we have two events going on right now at the same time. We have uh, one day next week, I think we have three going on at the same time. So uh, it's a bit of a challenge to handle all the technology, but hopefully everything is working. Um, I am pleased to... Welcome once again to the Cato Institute, my old friend Rob Bradley, um, I have known and worked with Rob for many years. In fact, I was with him through all the decades of, uh, uh, that he worked on his uh, first book, uh, which turned out to be two books, Oil, Gas, and Government. Uh, which is really a magisterial history of all the kinds of energy regulation in the United States for a couple of centuries. And one thing I remember from that period, and I think this says something about Rob as a scholar, is a lot of my colleagues, it's very difficult to get them to show their manuscript to any expert who might point out flaws in it. They just as soon publish the darn thing and, and not have to deal with criticism, Rob really made a practice of sending every chapter to experts in the field. Nobody could be an expert in this whole field, but he sent chapters to experts in each field and typically they would come back with some criticisms. They would say, you've missed this, you haven't understood this, you completely ignored this area. And instead of getting angry or sullen, he would go back to the library, read more books and old journals and newspapers on that subject, and then send me a chapter that was twice as long that covered all the material, which is how the book ended up like this. Oil, gas, and government, the US experience, and you can see it up there. Um, Tyler Cowan made the point Recently, on his blog, Marginal Revolution, Rob Bradley is a very much underrated economic historian, probably because he's not an academic. He does not teach in a department of history or a department of economics. And that might be a reason that academics underrate his work. But as you can see from this book, from this new uh, uh, trilogy, uh, it's very important, very thoughtful work. Uh, Just to give you the formal details, Robert L. Bradley, Jr. is the CEO and founder of the Institute for Energy Research. He is an honorary research fellow at the Center for Energy Economics at the University of Texas at Austin. He's an adjunct scholar of both the Cato Institute and the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He is the author, I think, of seven books, but as you can see, there seem to be more than seven books here. Some of these he edited, some he was a contributor to, so it may be true that he's the author of seven books, several of which we were proud to publish and none of which were short. He's sort of like the Robert Caro of energy history. Um, The books take longer than he expects and they end up being more comprehensive. In his latest trilogy, he's focused on the issue of political capitalism, the system that might also be known to some as corporatism or cronyism, or perhaps by people who like it, it's known as public-private cooperation. Um, in his new trilogy, he published a couple of years ago, I think, Capitalism at Work, Business, Government, and Energy, and then this year he published uh, Edison to Enron, Energy Markets and Political Strategies. Please welcome Rob Bradley.
1: Well, thank goodness for David Bowes, Ed Crane, and the Cato Institute, because back in 1979, they uh, really took a big risk, uh, and they sponsored me to write a book. I'd never written a book before. I'd written some short articles in the field of Austrian economics. Uh, But I got the, I remember the letter. I still have it. I should have brought it with me, uh, because we're getting old now, David, or at least we're middle age. But it was 1979, and it was the Cato Institute accepts your proposal. And it was $5,000, which is, uh, was more money in seven, a lot more money in 79 than it is today. Are y'all still paying $5,000 for books? When we can get away with it. Okay, okay. What does that tell you? People love to write books for the Cato Institute. But uh, that I remember where I was when I got the letter. I remember exactly where I was, and I just, yes. And uh, books, I don't know if uh, y'all have worked on books, but uh, a lot of times they open up on you. You get into there, you get into them uh, in the areas that you're familiar with, and you start doing research and it just starts opening up. And you figure, you know what, if I don't make the case, or if I don't cr- uh, chronicle uh, this intervention, no one else might ever do it. And it has a great lesson, so you gotta do it. So. Books expand, and it was gonna be a year and a half book. Uh, it Took four and a half to five years, full-time research, and another decade to get it published, but thank God we got it out, uh, and um, uh, here we are with uh, some writing since then. My talk today, Give Me Regulation, from Samuel Ensel to James E. Rogers, of uh, the CEO of Duke Energy, uh, who is spending lots of his time in the office working on the pro- on the uh, uh, the uh, merger with Progress Energy? Um, uh, and what's interesting here is that James uh, Rogers, uh, in f- some formative years of his career, he was head of the interstate gas transmission companies at Enron. And when I was hired by Enron back in '85. It was Rogers who I went and interviewed with, uh, and um, uh, he was my uh, boss's boss. So, uh, so you, uh, Enron is still alive and well today in some ways uh, with the political capitalism Roger, uh, model of, of uh, James Rogers that we'll get to here uh, in a minute. Uh, here's a book. Um, what's What happens when you write a treatise, particularly uh, regarding real-world intervention in in something like the oil and gas industry where it's really a group of industries, exploration, production, refining, retailing, there's integrated firms, there's also non-integrated firms. But you go through the massive regulation of intervention in all these different phases and the, the advantage of writing a treatise or looking at it all is you start to see patterns that you wouldn't see if you were uh, writing a regulation of a certain history or a certain segment. It all comes together. Um, and um, uh, two quotations have sort of captured the major themes of the book. One of them uh, in a, uh, it was a, a uh, federal court case regarding uh, natural gas regulation where the judge says, there were as many objections as there are differ- differing economic interests. And that sort of gets to the calculator philosophy of business people. Are you for or against something? Well, we'll hold on, I'm against. And then another version, oh, oh I'm for. Uh, that's what it really gets down to uh, in a lot of cases. Um, and the other point that uh, Alfred Kahn uh, noticed in the energy industry in particular uh, with historical um, uh, oil regulation, but he saw it in other industries too, and he wrote in his his treatise on uh, the economics of regulation, quote, one interference with competition necessitates another and yet another And in an industry of rugged individualists becomes more and more tightly enmeshed with the government to which they originally turned in hope of protecting themselves from competition. Uh, and this comes into play uh, uh, many times in the historical experience with uh, oil, gas, uh, and electricity. Uh, my two books here, it's a <clears throat> trilogy on political capitalism. Uh, uh, capitalism at Work is a worldview book. Uh, the second book is a lot of industry history looking at The natural gas industry, which is sort of two industries in the sense of there's an interstate uh, uh, part of the industry and intrastate, and why does that make a difference? Uh, It has to do with a lot of regulation. So I look at interstate natural gas transmission, interstate, and then the history of electricity in the United States uh, from inception to about uh, the 1930s when Samuel Insull went bust. you know, you have to go to the scholars and get a quotation uh, on how great your book is, even if you ghostwrite it yourself. Shh, you, that doesn't happen much, does it, uh, David? Uh, Joseph Pratt, uh, uh, he, he is an industry historian, and he liked the book. But to be a little bit more humble, I have another quotation. This is from my mother, who says five or six pages gets me right to sleep. And it's true. You know, that's another story. Uh, major, major themes, uh, rent-seeking, political capitalism is a way of life in American business. You see it uh, in the in the 18th century, uh, more in the 19th century, and just all over the place in the 20th uh, century. Um, even though it really has not made the textbooks, uh, and it's still not in the textbooks very much. Um, so you have a demand for government favor, but there's also supply of government fa- fa- favor for the transaction, uh, and that's the government side, and public choice economics uh, 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 has that out so well. And the uh, Bruce Yandel bootleggers and Baptist interpretation of rent-seeking, uh, it's certainly very applicable to electricity, what I'll be talking about today. and it's. Uh, it has a lot of application. It's a, it's a very useful way to, to look at the world uh, where you have self-interested business people and you have reformers. Uh, and in my study of the US experience with oil, gas, and electricity, most, the, I'd say the, certainly the majority, if not the great majority, of government intervention had well-defined business support Uh, early on that made it happen. Uh, There's not a whole lot of regulation where it's really reformer-driven, meaning that uh, academics or those in government go, God, you know, this is a better way to do, this is a better way to regulate. Uh, uh, So most uh, intervention is shaped by uh, uh, government or or business interests. Uh, Political capitalism is a term I use a lot, uh, and it was a term Uh, that was popularized uh, by uh, Gabriel Coco in a book that will be uh, 50 years old next year, uh, The Triumph of Conservatism. Um, And he defines political capitalism, the utilization of political outlets to attain conditions of stability, predictability, and security to allow corporations reasonable profits over the long run. So when I think of special government favor, uh, three things, there's a favorable regulation, there's a favorable tax provision, or there's a check written on the U.S. Treasury. Those are the three areas, and maybe there's a fourth one I'm not, uh, thinking about. Uh, you know, a, a, definition here, um, a political capitalism, private property market system shaped by special interest government intervention. Uh, regulation subsidies or tax code provisions, and it's less reformer-driven than it is business-driven. If you didn't have any business support for it, would the regulation uh, or the or the tax provision or the check written on the U.S. Treasury would it have occurred? And if not, uh, you can say that uh, um, uh, that is uh, uh, political capitalism, rent-seeking. Uh, two avenues to business success in a free market uh, and there's lots of creative destruction. The market's very competitive and this is what creates the demand for uh, rent seeking and there's uh, market entrepreneurship or there's political uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, market entrepreneurship is the way of capitalism, political entrepreneurship the way of political uh, capitalism. Uh, lots of terms here. Uh, for political capitalism and uh, David, the, uh, the 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 uh, governmental term or the government-friendly term of business pri- uh, business public uh, public private partnership. Public private partnership. Maybe I should come up with some terms here uh, that you, we hear more often. Uh, maybe there's some other ones, uh, but. The one that's really uh, taken hold here, with uh, the stimu- in the post-stimulus era, uh, and it's something that uh, Occupy Wall Street on the left and libertarians uh, on the other side can all agree with, and that is crony capitalism. Now, uh, some people uh, just want to use the term cronyism to mean political capitalism, but um, uh, I don't quite want to do that. Like uh, Marlo Lewis, are you here? I Marlowe and I are cronies, okay? And what that means is every now and then we call each other up and we and I go, Marlowe, I just wanted to let you know you're doing great work, you're a great guy, you're a great um, musician. And he, and he goes, thanks, Rob. Then he says back to me, you're doing great work, you're a great scholar, you're a great tennis player, and then we hang up. That's cronyism, okay? But crony capitalism is something a little different uh, uh, here. Milton Friedman, uh, and this to me is a very striking quotation uh, that he uh, gave to in an interview with Reason Magazine. He said, the two greatest enemies of, political, of free enterprise in the United States have been, on the one hand, my fellow intellectuals, and on the other hand, the business corporations of this country. Wow. Um, and back in the 60s, uh, and this is why this book got so big, the oil industry was just amazing, all the things that they Uh, uh, had done, uh, whether it was a quota, a tariff, market demand proration on the state level, uh, special um, tax provisions, depletion allowance, all the rest of it. Uh, It's an amazing story. And Friedman uh, said in one of his Newsweek columns, few US industries sing the praises of free enterprise more loudly than the oil industry, yet few industries rely so heavily on government favors. and I, I heard once from a businessman. He said, "He says, you know, we like competition for our inputs, but we don't like competition for our outputs." And I thought, ah, that's an- another way to think of it. So crony capitalism run amok. And I just pulled off this, all this from the uh, internet, and it's not hard to do. But certainly, this is a new way uh, to view uh, government activism in the economy today. um, And it's one that we can, uh, uh, I think, change some minds on. We can speak to uh, the left uh, on this and bring them uh, more to a libertarian uh, position. Uh, Background. Um, The energy, there's really no such thing in the United States as the energy industry. It's a group of of different, distinct industries. One reason is because of government intervention. That is why the natural gas business is not integrated like the oil business. The oil business would be more integrated, much more integrated than it is today, uh, if it were not for government intervention. The natural gas industry would be integrated rather than the current structure that has been called the three-headed monster of exploration, production, transmission, and distribution. Uh, That's all because of uh, regulation. And then electricity is something completely different. And it took me a long time to uh, really understand this, but electricity is uh, one of the most unique industries in the United States. One reason is, or the major reason is, it can't be stored. As soon as you generate electricity, you have to uh, transmit it, uh, 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 distribute it, consume it. Uh, And the economics of electricity are completely different from other industries. And it took a real genius that uh, few people know about that uh, I'd like to introduce you to, named Samuel Insull, who really came up with the modern business model for electricity. And Samuel Insull did every bit as much for the electricity industry as John D. Rockefeller did for the oil industry. What Rockefeller did for the oil industry, he understood the advantages of integration, um, uh, vertical uh, uh, integration. And a lot of market share, too, uh, uh, horizontal economies of scale. and what Rockefeller also did that was just brilliant is he pretty much stayed out of exploration and production, uh, which is not, uh, it certainly uh, in his day was not, a, not much of a science as far as drilling. Uh, I think today Rockefeller's business model would have a lot of exploration and production. But back then, uh, uh, exploration and production was too chancy. It was feast or famine and Rockefeller. Uh, knew enough to let the others take that risk, and when they really hit it, he'd come right in with uh, 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 pipelines and refineries and uh, downstream uh, sales. So, you know, what Rockefeller did with the business model for petroleum was just huge. Got the price way down, and he standardized it. So when you uh, lit your kerosene lamp, it wouldn't blow up. And it did blow up a lot of times. There was... Uh, it was a real a hazard uh, at the time, and standard oil, standard being uh, uh, standard quality uh, was, a, was a huge step forward. Now, electricity, um, what Ensel did on about six different fronts, he put it together, I'll go back to that. Ensel um, um, discovered economies of scale in production, generation of electricity, or uh, what he called uh, mass production. He also found economies of scale in consumption, meaning that the more people you have, even if it's, uh, you know, all in one apartment complex where you think they're using their electricity at about the same time, the more people you have, the more the load factor or their usage flattens out a little bit, okay? Could be because electricity has to be consumed, the moment it is produced um, uh, means that you have a peak load, okay, on the highest moment of the day, and if you meet that peak load, what happens the rest of the day? Um, and at the time, electricity companies were expanding to meet more demand, they'd put in the new transmission, they put in the new generation plant, and guess what, they're losing more money. They had a real problem of economic calculation. Uh, and the problem is if you put in a new plant or new infrastructure to serve someone who is using that electricity one hour of the day, you are playing interest for 24 hours a day, okay, to serve that, to make your money off a, of, you know, a volumetric rate just to, for that one hour. And uh, Insel didn't, um, Invent this, but he found out he was on a vacation in, uh, in England and he noticed at night all the lights were on at a, um, uh, with the shops. And he goes, what's going on here? How can they afford that? And he found out that they had a, a, a special meter, electricity meter, that recorded your average usage and your peak usage. And because of this, they charge a demand charge, two-part rate, a demand charge to cover the real peaky users and then a volumetric charge for every unit, every kilowatt hour you uh, own. So, Insel, uh got the meters back to the United States and this is a way that if you have a new customer, uh, uh, you can meet uh, that demand and you can spend a lot of money on the generation of the transmission by charging them a demand charge to make sure it's profitable, okay? and that really solved the problem of pricing or economic calculation with electricity. So Ensel had that. He had mass uh, production. He would tell the, the folks at General Electric, uh, you, you want to build me a, a, a two megawatt generation plant? I want four megawatts. And they say it can't be done, it'll explode. And Ensel had an engineering mind and he had a sense of uh, what GE could do, so he pushed them, pushed them, and he would even take the risk. Says if it blows up, it'll be my cost, not yours. And Ensel even he turned on one of these new machines, and it was rumbling, and they had to turn it off. And he runs, you know, he runs to safety. But uh, he kept pushing them, and the and the generating units were getting bigger and bigger. At the same time, he's offering ridiculously low prices, according to all his competitors, getting more and more demand. And all this uh, comes together, uh, uh, really, in a new business model uh, for electricity. Uh, and Ensel is one of the great entrepreneurs of the United States uh, in a lot of areas, including corporate culture. Uh, the things he was doing for his employees were pretty amazing you know, around the turn of the century, in the first decades of the 20th century. Uh, and there's a great, it's just a great uh, story. So I introduce you to Samuel Ensel. Um, now we all know that electricity is a natural monopoly. Okay, there's no way that you can have someone put a ladder to a pole and uh, put another wire there. You just can't be done, and so it has to be regulated. Well, actually, uh, here's a picture of the, in the 19, I mean the 1880s of wire on wire competition. There was a lot of competition. Okay, maybe there was too much in some sense um but uh the market process uh, generally works to uh eliminate uh, uh less efficient competitors and these things work themselves out but the think about it uh you know the idea of electricity having to be a natural monopoly uh uh you know you just look at power uh, at uh, wires and poles and you go i'm not sure now it's a little more difficult with natural gas or manufactured gas where you're you know, laying new uh, uh, pipeline down, but electricity is certainly an industry that doesn't have a natural monopoly characteristics. Uh, although, Ensel uh, was so brilliant, uh, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but, um, you know, he puts himself under public utility regulation, and he's lowering the rates when the regulators aren't telling him to do so. And there was something like 20 rate decreases he had over a couple of decades where you know he's just way ahead of uh, uh, the regulated uh, 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 rate. Now, the history of electricity regulation, which I won't get into here very much, uh, but what you see is they begin regulating at the distribution level, and the distribution company finds ways to make money in other subsidiaries or uh upstream, where they're making profits in an unregulated subsidiary uh, that they can't make in their regulated subsidiary. So the regulators have to say, oh, we got to regulate there, and it's a tar baby effect. And that's how you get uh, regulation uh, 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 from distribution all the way back to generation. It's why you get regulation uh, in across state lines rather than just in the state and it's one regulation leading to the other. So this is, makes it very important to argue for uh, open markets competition at the distribution level, because if you have it there, then you can make even a better, uh, much better case for deregulation or non-regulation uh, upstream. OK, so um, I talked some about uh, Samuel Insull. Uh, he came over as a 21-year-old. Uh, went to work as uh, Thomas Edison's secretary, and by the end of the first night, and they pulled an all-nighter. Uh, uh, Thomas Edison knew this guy was just uh, was fabulous. And within a matter of months, Ensel uh, uh, has power of attorney for Edison and is representing Edison on the business side. <clears throat> the two of them built up the company that became General Electric. Uh, Edison, uh, Thomas Edison, wasn't, was not a good businessman. And Ensel saved his hide, and they almost went bust together. But J.P. Morgan had enough of Thomas Edison and and kind of forced Edison out. Uh, Ensel was the number three executive in the new General uh, Electric company. It was Edison General Electric, but they got Edison's name uh, out of there. Um, uh, And Ensel is going, this is not where the action is in manufacturing. Electric appliances or generators, the action is in distribution. So, Ensel looks around; he sees Chicago as the best market in the United States, and he builds up uh, uh, the electric industry in Chicago and through the Midwest. And it's it's quite a story. Um, but what Ensel uh, also did, and this is gets to a major theme of my talk here, is he embraced public, statewide public utility regulation for himself and and the industry for the first time. And he outlined his, okay, let me, um, before I get to that, um, Ensel was the first person in the electric industry to hire a bunch of people, like a room full of us, to go over statistics and come up with these load curves. And he's always trying to get demand from the peak uh, in the valleys because he's paying interest on all this infrastructure 24 hours a day he wants you to use the machines 24 hours a day and all the load curves and he would give speeches all around uh, just fascinating you know with the new all his new concepts uh, for this unique uh, industry and, and reading the books and seeing what he was doing is just it's fascinating so in 1898 before the National Electric Light Association, the predecessor organization to the Edison Electric Institute, he stuns his fellow CEOs and comes out advocating uh, statewide public utility regulation, cost-based regulation. You get your reasonable cost, you get a rate of return, a reasonable return on your invested capital, okay? And here's the uh, here's quotation, he says, if, if we get franchise protection and let them regulate our rates, it's the best thing we can do. It's good for consumers because it'll lower the cost of capital. Uh, we can place, you know, 20-year bonds uh, and we have a 20-year franchise. Our interest rate's a little lower. There's less risk here. And it's lower rates for, uh, 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 for our customers. Uh, Franchise protection in return for uh, rate-of-return regulation, and the other CEOs are, you know, we're not ready for it, okay? Um, Now, in the manufactured gas industry, and back uh, in the 19th century, we didn't really have much natural gas. What we had was coal gas, okay? And that was a separate industry. And they came out uh, uh, in a, a predecessor group to the American Gas Association. Uh, where, you know, the sort of the head guy there, you know, he goes, God dog it, they keep making these new types of coal gas. It's cheaper than the type that I'm making. And, you know, I don't like this raid. And, you know, they're coming in my market territories. And this is a, I love this quote. Raiders are still abroad in the land. The men with processes that can make gas for almost nothing and still have a valuable residual do not seem to despair in their efforts to get a standing in cities already well supplied. If they only were modest enough to go to the small towns not now supplied with gas and demonstrate the value of the process there, they would merit the everlasting gratitude of existing companies. Isn't that classic? So what he wants and what he got beginning in uh, Massachusetts was uh, statewide public utility regulation. How are we doing on time? OK, we're speeding up, folks. We're speeding up. OK. Um, OK, here's the deal. Why would INSEL and this is a paradox that I did not solve until rather late in the game. Why would Insel want regulation when he himself is so good that he's, he really has a natural monopoly and no one can compete with him? Here is the, uh, the reason. Ensel was very scared of local rate regulation from city fathers that would come out with like a a rate ordinance saying, you know, your rate has to be XYZ, not based on cost or anything. And it was very punitive and it was a real risk, it happened. He was scared of that and on the other hand he was scared of municipalization where some populist politicians go, God, you know, the rates will be a lot lower if you um, uh, if, we na- if we, you know, uh, municipalize the company. So he has these forces and there's a lot of political risk and the case that Insel made to his fellow executives uh, was that, look, uh, I know you don't like uh, uh, rate of return regulation, but we get franchise protection, okay, to lower our cost and with this and given that the courts are going to um, uphold public utility regulation um, uh, in the value of our investment, it's, uh, it's uh, we, we can forestall, we can prevent uh, uh, punitive regulation on the local level and socialism. And that was the case, okay? So the, the title of my talk was originally, give me regulation, not liberty, but that's not quite right with insult uh, because if you didn't have local regulation or the threat of municipalization, I don't think Ensel and the rest of the industry would have gone to statewide public utility regulation. I think that's a very important point. OK, uh, now, uh, going to Enron and James uh, E. Rogers, the old Enron was mostly intrastate natural gas within Texas, not regulated, light-handed regulation. Ken Lake takes over, and within a year, year and a half, he buys interstate pipeline companies regulated by the FERC in Washington. He hires Rogers to manage the uh, pipelines here. Rogers has a lot of what Ayn Rand called an Atlas-shrugged Washington ability. He worked in Washington, he, was a, he worked at FERC uh, in the old days uh, and he was just a real master at working in, through rate cases and beating your authorized rate of return. Uh, In Enron's business model, and this is a talk in itself, virtually all the profit centers had something to do with government intervention, and I don't have time to go through this. Um, I'm I'm gonna have to go real fast here. Uh, uh, This quote by Jeff Skilling. Uh, uh, Enron started a coal company near the end, and the coal executives were real upset because uh, the PR department wouldn't do anything to them, any advertising for him because it, that contradicted Enron's green image. So the coal executive goes to the 50th floor and has a meeting, and he's yelling at Skilling, and Skilling goes, oh, hold on, hold on, Enron is a green company. The green stands for money. Uh, that is one of the, the great quotations, I think, of, the, uh, uh, of Enron's history. But Rogers, uh, very much a political entrepreneur, and he took Ken Lay's political capitalism model from the natural gas industry to the electricity industry by leaving Enron to join uh, the company at the time was Public Service Company of uh, Indiana. Okay? And through merger, that became uh, Synergy, and through merger with Duke, that uh, became uh, uh, Duke. So, but what Rogers did, he was the first one in the industry, the electricity industry, to embrace CO2 regulation. CO2 is a problem, global warming is a problem, and uh, we should have caps, okay? So, um, and it, you know, political capitalism can age you here, uh, but uh, maybe some of us are aging also. Um, If you're not at the table, you're gonna be on the menu, Uh, Jim Rogers, okay? I wanted to get ahead of carbon dioxide regulation. Okay, and uh, you know he's a a lawyer. uh, He's he's a wheeler dealer, spending most of his time outside of the office, uh, which is interesting. Ken Lay spent most of his time outside of the office. Um, uh, But basically, uh, and I'm going to speed up here. Uh, Rogers got the electricity industry behind uh, CO2 cap and trade, and it ended up failing on them. And uh, political capitalism is a is a risky business uh, strategy. Okay, and he's uh, but he's gotten a lot of stimulus money. Uh, uh, David Bowes and I looked, and uh, uh, both Progress and Duke have received 400 million dollars each in stimulus money. Uh, and um, Duke has received other money for uh, carbon capture and storage in one of their power plants, and he added all together probably about a billion dollars in special subsidies. Uh, So um, Rogers has gotten a lot uh, from his uh, political activism. Uh, Public policy conclusions, um, uh, electricity is a different industry. Uh, The contributions of Samuel Insull are uh, are really uh, are very unique in the U.S. experience. He was a father of public utility regulation in the industry, but keep in mind that he was playing defense as much or more than poly, uh, than offense. And the Ken Lay to uh, Jim Rogers story it continues today on the political side uh, of the mixed economy with electricity and. This begs the question, well, what do we do as policy analysts to uh, uh, somehow uh, get a divorce between uh, business and government in all these areas of business? You know, le- And I think what we need to do is, is to get business weirded out by government failure. And I found this on the internet, so I put it up there. And uh, if y'all don't laugh, I won't use it again. <laughs> Okay, he's shocked. What if business people were shocked if government came and offered them that? We'd be doing our job. So, that's it and uh, we'll open it up to questions and maybe lunch, David.
0: Okay, Uh, yes, we'll open it up to questions because we are recording this. Rob, I'll let you call on people and then we'll bring a microphone around so you can be heard.
1: Okay, any questions or answers? A lot of you are working in this area and have your own perspective. Yes. David
0: Bowes. All right, you, you have done a lot in all of these books to show the history of government regulation, and in particular, to show how one intervention leads to another. So I guess the question is, you say, Samuel Insull would have been okay without regulation if it hadn't been that he was going to get hit with regulations he didn't like. Is it possible to actually have a free market in energy, or is it the case that once you get the one intervention, it's just inevitable that you keep piling one more after another?
1: Well, I think it's a more powerful case for comprehensive deregulation than piecemeal deregulation. Because in any situation of half slave, half free, there's unintended consequences, there's funny ways to make profits, uh, uh, what might be called superfluous entrepreneurship. Uh, So the fact that uh, so many regulations are just strings of regulation really tells you you need to deregulate uh, uh, in a wholesale rather than piecemeal manner. follow-up to that yes sir there there has been quite a bit of deregulation in in the electric industry in the last 10 or 20 years deregulation of some generation and some distribution
0: Um, is that creating the competition that was intended is it working to to spur that
1: well certainly with natural gas uh, with the uh, change, uh, really, the revolution of public utility regulation, where you unbundle the commodity from transmission, you deregulate the commodity, you continue to regulate trans, uh, transmission, interstate transmission. Uh, there's been advantages to that deregulation of the commodity. Uh, it's very competitive uh, at the wellhead. I think the problem uh, is that we, with the regulated portion of uh, 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 regulated transmission, not only with gas pipelines, but uh, interstate electricity transmission, it's still under regulation. And uh, you don't get the entry and the investment that you would get if it was completely deregulated. And I know that uh, Jerry Taylor and Peter Van Dorn have done a very good job in critiquing Uh, so-called mandatory open access or third-party open access. With gas and electricity pipelines, the idea of common carriage, common carrier, it's uh, uh, virtually all due to government intervention. And uh, 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 what happens there, it's a penalty to the owners of these assets. Um, And one of the arguments for not regulating is that even if these... uh, uh, the owners of the asset make uh, big profits. Uh, The advantage for consumers is you get a lot more investment and you get these type pipelines and transmission lines built sooner, which is good for customers. And certainly before uh, these assets are built, you don't build them on spec. What you do is you get ironclad contracts, uh, people that are going to, uh, uh, you know, use the gas or electricity. So it's sort of a monopsony situation. Yeah, there's only one pipeline here or one transmission line, but you have a group of customers that will agree to uh, enter into contracts to, fin- to finance the asset, and it's a very uh, competitive situation. I don't see market failure there or the, uh, or the need for regulation. So to answer your question more succinctly, Uh, Certainly, on the commodity side, we have deregulation. You know, remember the the gas shortages uh, we had in the 70s? You know, that's a thing of the past. But with transmission still regulated, I think that's a great opportunity for uh, deregulation. And the way you could do it is, in any regulated situation, you could say, all right, pipeline customers, you all make a deal, and the FERC will say, okay. And you're out of here. Could be a long-term contract. Doesn't have to be two or four years. It could be 10 years. But you're out of here. No more rate cases. You can shut down your government affairs departments. Let's all win. Marlo.
0: Rob, would you like to uh, apply some of these lessons to an ongoing battle, Uh, the renewal, or expiration of the wind production tax credit. You have uh, something like 37 states which either have renewable electricity mandates or goals. This is driving up the cost of electricity in those states. Those states don't want to charge their customers, especially corporate customers, more money uh, or higher rates because that'll drive business out. And so they want the taxpayer, the general taxpayer, to subsidize uh, the provision of these uneconomic electricity sources. And so that, that, that's a case of regulations begetting not necessarily additional regulation, but finagling with the tax code. Would, would you like to comment on that?
1: Well, you know, Marlo, you're educating me as you speak. Uh, you know, we have a situation here where the state regulators want to federalize the cost. So, you know, the old principle of uh, concentrated benefits, diffuse cost, it sounds like this comes into play uh, in this example. But what's exciting about this is, you know, we have pretty good theory. You know, Ludwig von Mises in his doctoral <coughs> dissertation in 1912 came up with something, and he might not have been the first, but he saw it very clearly with you increase the money supply, the government increases the money supply. You create inflation because of uh, monetary inflation. You have price controls. Because of price controls, you have, alloc- you have shortages, so you have allocation controls. The Mises interventionist thesis. So uh, we can take something like that and we can apply it in all sorts of different ways, uh, and we add a few principles, such as diffuse uh, cost-concentrated benefits, and, uh, you know, it just makes the world intelligible. I think what's discouraging probably for a lot of people in the room is that we're, we're becoming great historians and we see all this application and you know, we can look at uh, new regulations such as the, the health of the Obama, Obamacare where you, you look at the initial regulation and what they've done is they're trying to front load in this regulation all the things that they think are going to happen. They're trying to uh, control all the gaming and the superfluous entrepreneurship like, you know, today with the price control, they'll build in allocation controls, okay? So the regulators are getting smarter in that they're front-loading a lot of this, and it's leading to this incredible uh, complexity. But, um, uh, you know, we understand it. There's a lot of historical examples, and now how do we uh, uh, defeat the monster? You know, uh, we've gone from theory to history, and you go back and forth. Uh, history to th- improves your theory. But now we're ready for public policy. And that's really a question for the, uh, the whole room. What, you know, what do we need to do differently? Uh, Mises once said, I set out to be a reformer, ended up being a historian of decline. <laughs> you know, But I, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, uh, and thank goodness for the Cato Institute and CEI mm-hmm. and a lot, of other, a lot of y'all in here for uh, trying to turn the tide.
2: What what do you see as the primary issues the industry has with the the recent EPA activities, and what could the EPA do to provide benefits to the public and the industry?
1: Ooh, oh my goodness, uh, uh, oh my gosh! You know Marla Lewis here on a day to day basis is uh, on top of the, a lot of the EPA. Uh, uh, activity, and I can only speak in the broadest terms, of, uh, of getting the agenda out of environmental regulation, of, of uh, trying to get in some uh, sense of cost-benefit analysis, recognizing that uh, wealth is health. We've got to get back to first principles, and we've got to get the uh, Malthusian agenda out of uh, 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 air Quality regulations, uh, water regulations, a, a lot of things. Uh, I think we made a lot of progress on the intellectual front, but uh, you know it's time uh, politically to uh, see more results. And uh, you know CEI uh, in particular, uh, you know you, uh, the, their folks are working on this on a day-to-day basis and keeping us uh, informed and. You know, as a, as a scholar and as someone who's pretty utilitarian who wants good things, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with our intellectual case, Marlowe. I mean, you don't wake up in the middle of the night going, oh, my God, I am a villain to <laughs> <Do> you. <laughs> you feel good about your intellectual case. Does that answer your question? Yes. We've got to get back to first principles.
2: it's occurred to me on occasion, because I used to be a utility lawyer, even did some work on the opposite side of the table with Jim Rogers years ago, that in 1969 there was a sea change, which has sort of become a tidal wave, and I'm referring to the environmental movement, environmental permits that you need to build uh, almost anything in the utility industry. Over time, uh, on many occasions, The only friend we had in town was the local utility regulator that knew the numbers, that knew the demands, that knew the growth, and would come out and say, whoa, you know, this company needs to get that permit because if they don't have a new plant online, if they can't get this distribution line in, if they can't get this undergrounding program in, we're going to have problems. And at times, that was the only friend we had in town or in the state. A regulator uh, we didn't appreciate it on all the other occasions <laughs> but at least in that respect from 69 on um, it wasn't a bad thing to have around in many a case have you come across any learning or experiences on that subject
1: well what came to mind with your story is that a lot of this environmental regulation for distribution companies or integrated distribution companies is its rate base OK, put on scrubbers or do this or that, it's rate-based. Uh, and if you can make a rate of return on that, uh, it's OK. Um, so there's some funny incentives here. Um, but w- what would be a more specific question uh, from that that I could uh, try to take a shot at? Or maybe someone else in the room, uh, I'd invite you to, uh, to chime in as well. Anybody? Uh yes sir. Go ahead and you you got response. I I've got a
2: response, had a response. No okay. I was gonna raise go ahead. I was gonna go another area if someone was responding Go ahead.
1: Okay. I was just gonna raise the question, given the fact that electricity is is can't be stored and that the market has to clear instantaneously, supply and demand have to balance instantaneously within fractions of a second at all times. How do you keep a market like that in line and always in supply and demand if you don't have some type of regulation on the reliability of the power? Uh, You know, uh, Samuel Insull in his day spent a lot of money on a kind of a free market basis on some storage. It wasn't much, but it was some storage. And he, the thing that scared him more than anything else in life was having a, uh, a blackout. And he would always, in his speeches, he would talk uh, tell people, you know, think about what a blackout is. People are stuck in elevators, you know, and this and that. It is life or death. People, certainly in his day and even today, it's a life or death uh, experience, and I think the market, through contractual means, uh, has to guard against uh, uh, these worst-case events, Um, and there could be a role of uh, insurance, but I I think there's a number of of, of both incentives in the market and uh, and certainly penalties for non-performance that would guard us against worst-case uh, uh, events now, you can we can argue about safety regulation, uh, but uh, you know you can pass a law saying no blackouts or if a plane crashes or you know, um, uh, but I, I think it can be done without regulation through the contractual uh, system. And you disagree. Uh, contracts uh, between uh, buyer and seller. And it could be uh, for residential's, uh, and you see a number of cases where there's some lawyers that represent big groups of residential customers. They would be the one at the at the table. I mean, you could have one contract for uh, a million residential's. Uh, groups of businesses too. I mean, there's there's contracting cost here, but uh, uh, you know the idea that uh, you can legislate away uh, risk is, is, uh, is something that uh, I don't think would occur in the electricity business.
2: Uh, Two things particularly struck me. Uh, One was about the uniqueness of electricity and that it is difficult to store. And another thing about business interests very, you know, almost always being, uh, having, you know, the bootleggers and PEPTIS kind of uh, role in passing regulation. Um, A number of hot topics are supposed to um, address these things. Smart grid technology, uh, storage in the case of, like, an electric car fleet. Um, or other technologies that people have been talking about, um, are these things, uh, and the intermittency of um, of a lot of green energy like uh, wind and solar, are these things likely to actually relieve pressure or increase pressure for regulation in the future?
1: Well, the green energy um, uh, on the electricity side, wind and solar, the intermittency problem is, has created all sorts of new risks and challenges for the Electricity grid that's uh, used to, uh, um, uh, you know, more stable generation sources, uh, whether it's uh, nuclear, oil, gas, or coal. Um, so you know, there's a real tension uh, between performance and green energy, uh, and that's led to more intervention, and it's led to more requirements on the private sector. It's another example of spiraling uh, intervention. So. You know, with intervention, you're looking for unintended consequences, even though I think we under, we, we're not as surprised as we used to be We've got, with unintended consequences. Um, um, but, um, you know, this gets back toward uh, deregulation. Maybe there's unintended positive consequences of deregulation, things we're not even thinking about because the whole system is so integrated.
0: Thank you, Rob. Lunch is ready out here, so I think we should cut off the formal part of this and invite people to go and get lunch, and you can bring it back in here, and then we can continue the discussion informally.